start this evening by chanting the refuges and precepts. So I want to take a few minutes to say something about the uh, refuges. So I'll say a few things about the refuges, and last night Michelle talked about the precepts. So traditionally when we start a retreat, we take the three refuges and the five precepts. And the traditional refuges are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, if you connect with the Buddha as a historical person who lived and Uh, seeked answers to life's deepest questions and found um, freedom, you can connect with the Buddha. But the Buddha means the awakened one, and there are awakened ones in all religions of this world. So if you have another religion that's close to your heart and um, you would prefer to think of the Buddha as Jesus or Muhammad or some other person that's um, highly realized, feel free to connect to it that way. Also, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we are connecting with our own, what we call Buddha nature, our our own um, capacity to find freedom and happiness in this life. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, the word Dhamma uh, means the the teachings or the truth or the path. And so we're taking refuge that there is a path we can walk. There are teachings that can guide us. There are truths that we can learn that bring peace and happiness to our minds and hearts. And when we take refuge in the Sangha, the Sangha means the community of practitioners. So that can mean that we take refuge in each other that we um, celebrate the fact that we sit together and we support each other by sitting together. We energize each other by doing this practice together. And the Sangha could also include all of the people that support you to practice. So feel free to take these refuges in any way that works for you or to not take them at all if it um, doesn't work for you. There's really no pressure to um, take part in this. Related to the uh, refuges is um, the tradition of bowing. You've noticed that some of us teachers bow in different ways and we bow to you after a sitting and sometimes we bow to the Buddha. And sometimes people have kind of curiosity, what is that about? Um, For each person it may be somewhat different, but it's usually some expression of respect, 
of gratitude, of acknowledgement. So traditionally, people will bow three times to the Buddha or the three refuges. My knee is sore, so I can't do it. (laughs) Um, Sometimes at the end of a sitting, we'll bow to each other, and it's a way to say, you know, I respect your practice. I respect your efforts. I bow to the Dhamma as it unfolds for us here together. So again, that's entirely optional. We're pretty flexible here in the Theravadan tradition (laughs) about rituals. So we'll do the precepts uh, call and response. The first one, the first namo tasa, um, is different than how it was chanted last night. Um, And for the first one, we'll just do the first time call and response, and then uh, we'll do the next two, two together. And same with the refuges, we'll do the first set call and response, and then we'll do the rest of them together. And then the precepts will do call and response. Namo tasa. Tasa. Bhagavato. Bhagavato. Arahato. Sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddham saranam gachami. Buddham saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, sangam saranam gachami, sangam saranam gachami, dutiyampi buddham saranam gachami, Dutiyampi dhammam saranam gachami. Dutiyampi sangam saranam gachami. Tatiyampi buddham saranam gachami. Tatiyampi dhammam saranam gachami. Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Panati Pata Panati Pata We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhi Yami Sikapadam Samadhi Yami Adina Dana Adina Dana we Ramani Sikapadam Samadhi Yami. We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhi Yami. Abramacharya. Abramacharya. We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhi Yami. 
Ve Ramani Sikapadam Samadiyami Musawada Musawada Ve Ramani Sikapadam Samadiyami Ve Ramani Sikapadam Samadiyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Samadatana We Ramani Sikapadam Samadiyami We Ramani Sikapadam Samadiyami Idam me Silam Ame Silam Magapala Nanyasa Pachayo Ho Ho Tu Sadu, Sadu, Sadu. Thank you. Tonight's talk is on mindfulness, relaxation, and curiosity. I'd like to start with a reading from a book called the Spitwad Sutras. And it's uh, written by a teacher who um, taught in a Catholic school. And um, the chapter that I want to read from is called Attempting the Impossible. It's about meditating. Some of you may be able to relate to the title. So at the beginning of each, in this school, at the beginning of each class hour, um, apparently they would take a few minutes to um, connect with the presence of God. Or basically they would take a few minutes of silence. And so this is a little bit of his story about over his first year of teaching, how he connected to these moments of meditation And I find um, a lot of parallels to how many of us um, struggle when we first start to meditate and how we come to some sense of peace. He said, At first I wasn't very good at it. I would try to remember the presence of God, but I was more truly just trying to imagine it, trying even just to conceive of it. I knew that this was wrong, so during the prayers I tried to stop thinking altogether, just stop the chatter of my mind for a few seconds in meditation. I wasn't able to do this either, so I ended up just watching my thoughts course through my mind, trying not to get caught up in any of them. If I found myself inside some idea or emotion, I would simply return my attention to the breath. After a while of doing this, I noticed the same set of concerns kept popping up every day. Will I be able to fill up this hour? Will I get some time to relax today? What will I do if Marty acts up? Will I remember everything I'm supposed to say? Etc., etc. These same worries arose so often that I soon had them numbered. So during prayer, I could simply let them go. Oh, there's personal preoccupation number four. 
no need to bother about that again. As a result, after a while I was able to bring a purity of motive to my prayers that I had never before achieved, and this brought me some profound moments of rest during these short reflections. But then, beneath these surface concerns, I found another layer of stress. During this time, I would suddenly remember some stupid remark I had made a week ago, or a look of disdain on a student's face that I had seen last month but never registered. Or I'd suddenly remember something I was supposed to have done several days ago. During one meditation, I suddenly recalled an argument I had had in high school with my English teacher. It was as if my mind simply refused to attend to the reality before me, as if silence and peace were impossible to obtain. Brother Blake assured me that thoughts and images such as these bubble up in our minds all the time. We just never slow down enough to perceive them. Their logic makes up our moods. When we first try to focus, we reveal to ourselves the preoccupations of our pre-conscious minds. I wasn't to try to move beyond this stage, he suggested. I was to enjoy it, learn from it. This was a wonderful time in my prayer life. Every class period began with my opening a package sent special delivery from my deep self. Oh, I'm still thinking about that. My conversation with Linda affected me more than I thought. Oh, look at this, a fear I thought I had conquered years ago. Occasionally I would grow so bored of all my thoughts, feelings, plans, and obligations that suddenly my mind would become clear and the chatter would cease. This would usually happen a day or two after difficult meditation. And when I would emerge from one of these meditations and look at my students, their presence often struck me as miraculous, and I would listen to them with renewed interest and attention in hopes of discovering who they were and how they got there. The first time I tried to meditate, I, uh, I decided it was impossible, so perhaps that's why I um, relate to the title of that chapter. I meditated for five minutes, and my mind was so crazy, so all over the place, um, that, I, that I stopped and I said, no one can do this. It's impossible. Then I signed up for the three-month course. <laughs> But what I love about this story is how he goes from trying to control his mind to relaxation, then to genuine interest in what's happening with his mind, which then leads to presence and a sense of wonder. So we see that underneath all of this chaos in our minds, that I'm sure has manifested for many of you today, especially those who came in yesterday, that there's this amazing ability to be aware, to connect with a breath, to connect with boredom, to connect with pain, to connect with beauty, to connect with our lives as they unfold in each moment. 
mindfulness practice is about connecting to life with curiosity and freshness. Meditation helps us arrive in our lives to be alive and awake. And then we use this aliveness, this awakeness, to learn, to investigate and learn what leads to abiding happiness, what leads to peace of mind and heart. Meditation is about intimacy. It's about developing an intimate relationship to ourselves, to life unfolding in each moment, which is the same thing. Trungpa Rinpoche, the uh, very well-known, now deceased uh, Tibetan master, said, Meditation practice involves an intimate relationship with ourselves. Great intimacy is involved. It has nothing to do with achieving perfection, achieving some absolute state or other. It is purely getting into what we are, really examining our actual experience. So we come, it's somewhat like coming out of a dream world and connecting with the manifest world through our senses. So we connect through hearing, seeing, tactile sensations, smelling, tasting, the mind, thoughts, emotions. What is it? What is life? doesn't matter what it is either. It doesn't matter what's happening in the moment. We get interested in whatever it is. The famous uh, Zen master Suzuki Roshi, there's a story, a student came to Suzuki Roshi and he said, sometimes I get lethargic and discouraged about life and practice. Suzuki answered, this is good. All practice has these moments. Why did he say this is good? I think it's because it doesn't matter what happens. We connect with whatever it is. Life has these moments. It has lethargy and discouragement as part of this tapestry that also includes excitement, interest, connection. And we're holding it all. We're not excluding anything from our practice. The present moment is really the only time we have to be alive. How do we get here? How do we arrive in the present moment? Well, we have some techniques we use. We'll start with an anchor, often the breath, sometimes one of the other anchors that we offered this morning, sound or feeling the body sitting. We use these anchors as a way to reel ourselves in, to help us connect with the present moment. 
So we'll come back again and again as a way to start training our minds to be here. It takes a certain amount of effort. There's a certain action in kind of drawing the attention, uh, the attention back. But it can't be forced. We'll often try to force it. That's how we'll start. It's like, okay, I'm going to make my attention stay on the breath. I'm going to make it stay. Anybody try that today? Did it work? It, it doesn't usually work, but we often have to try it just to find out, <laughs> make sure. <laughs> the first time that I did the long retreat here, I, I was determined to um, to uh, keep my attention on the breath. I thought that was the goal to start with. It's not, but I thought it was. And um, And I thought that if I really wanted to do it, I should be able to. And that if I couldn't do it, there was probably something wrong with my practice or um, my commitment. That there was something wrong anyway. So I tried this for a while and got pretty tangled up. And and then I went into my uh, teacher and I was complaining about what a bad yogi I was because I couldn't keep my attention on the breath. And she said something that was very, very helpful. She said... You know, you can't control if your mind wanders. I was like, I can't? (laughs) She said, no, you can't. The only time you have any kind of what we would even begin to call choice is that moment you wake up. That moment you wake up, you can um, be aware of what's happening, and you can choose to come back to your anchor resting Usually you can choose. Sometimes you can't even do that, right? Sometimes you wake up and you're like, okay, thinking, I'm thinking, and then it's gone again. I heard that one um, meditation teacher had a six-year-old child who said to him, a daughter who said to him, I'm not the boss of my brain. pretty wise for six years old. <laughs> now that's not meant to be discouraging, but what it is, uh, what it does point to is the fact that we can't control our minds. But obviously we can do something, right? Or we wouldn't be here. We'd be at the beach this weekend. Um, and what we can do is we can begin to condition or train the mind to be aware, to be present. Just like intention, and then see what happens. And we keep coming back, and we keep coming back, and the mind starts to learn how to do that. And it can't be done with force. We learn to do it with kindness and gentleness. So if you find yourself lost in thought a lot, lost, 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 lost here, lost, 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 don't assume you're doing it wrong. This is just the human condition. See, the frog agrees. 
So we start with something to help us like an anchor, place to settle the attention, but ultimately we're interested in the unfolding of life in each moment just as it presents itself. Breath, sensation, sound, taste, feeling, awareness, what it means to be alive, and how we relate to that. That's what we're ultimately interested in. So remember that the anchor is just a tool. It's not a goal. Just to give us a fighting chance to be aware of what's happening. So with meditation, we develop a sense of being fully and wholeheartedly here. It's beautiful. And sometimes it feels like being stuck in a phone booth with a raving lunatic. We usually try to run from this raving lunatic. We usually don't want to have anything to do with it. But in meditation, we sit down and we meet this raving lunatic. We get to know him or her. Who are you? What are you? What is this life? Now, some of you may be settling in more peacefully. It's possible. We're all different. For many years, I would have what I called the 24-hour panic. In the first 24 hour, uh, four hours of any retreat, I would panic. I'd say, I'd think, oh, my God, I can't do this. I'm going to lose my mind. That was one of my favorite ones. <laughs> I'm going to go crazy. This is impossible. And this would happen for the first 24 hours. I shouldn't be here. All these kinds of doubts. And then after a while, it's like I got so used to that. It was like, oh, it's the 24-hour panic. Hello. You know, I quit believing it and gotten sucked in by it. And then eventually it quit happening. But for a number of retreats, it's like, like oh, Hello. Part of the settling in process. The best way I know to develop understanding, to develop presence, to develop an open heart is to relax, to surrender to the moment. Ajahn Amaro calls practice diligent effortlessness. So the effortlessness is about relaxing into what's happening, connecting without straining. And the diligent part is the wakefulness, the curiosity, the interest, the intention that we bring to sitting and practicing, walking and practicing. Another teacher, Dear Vamsa, suggests that we become more like hens sitting on eggs, that we quietly do the work of hatching the eggs, doing nothing that's externally active, but doing what needs to be done remaining with the eggs. 
So in some ways we're not doing anything. Effortlessness. I heard about a um, channel on, uh, apparently a cable channel on um, in um, England on TV, and the name of the channel is Watching Paint Dry. And apparently every 24 hours there's this wall that will be painted, and then um, it dries. <laughs> There's something about that that reminds me of meditation practice. <laughs> hmm. Can we sit and watch paint dry? I read somewhere recently that... Um, Somebody interviewed people who had uh, clinically died and come back. Um, and they interviewed them and asked them, from the other side, looking back on human life, what was most important? And there were two things that were mentioned over and over again. One of them was, how did you connect and engage with life? And the second one was, did you stay curious? I found these quite intriguing because they both remind me of what we're doing in meditation practice, connecting and engaging with life, learning how to do that, and then staying curious. Connecting with the moment with curiosity. So with mindfulness, we become deeply interested in our experience, all of it, the happiness, the sorrow, the pleasure, the pain. What is joy? What is grief? What is boredom? What is a breath? What is knee pain? In the last retreat, I mentioned a couple of times this retreat that uh, Michelle and I teach in Burma every January for several weeks. And we teach it with a Burmese sayadaw named Ulakana. And a few years ago when I was there as a yogi, he gave two talks only during the three weeks. I was there um, actually as kind of a study yogi. Usually he gives more talks in the regular retreats. And each talk was about an hour and 20 minutes long. And each one was about the pain in the buttocks when sitting for a long time. (laughs) And this was like the whole talk each time. And he felt like it seemed like he could could have gone on for for more talks. <laughs> it was fascinating. I was so fascinated by how he could talk that long on some subject that we would think you could get done with in about five minutes. 
Sometimes I felt like he was keeping us there a long time so we would have pain in our in our buttocks so <laughs> so we could really practice what he was teaching us right in the moment. <laughs> So mindfulness is a kind of um, deep awareness, not superficial, but um, sometimes it's called a penetrating awareness. So we can think of the breath, and we may even think that we know everything there is to know about a breath. Okay, you breathe in, you breathe out, air goes in, air goes out. That's kind of superficial. And when we practice, we get like really like, what is our direct experience of breathing? What do we actually experience as we breathe in and actually experience as we breathe out? So it's going from kind of our thoughts about breath to connecting directly with breath. And then we do that with with everything, with our whole life. So we might have thoughts about rice, eating rice, and then what's it like to actually connect with eating rice from the beginning of a mouthful of rice to the end of a mouthful of rice. I remember being surprised that rice tastes different, whether it's the beginning of the mouthful, middle, or end of the mouthful. <laughs> now, there's so much we miss about life because we live in our like ideas about it. And meditation's like, ah, can we like really connect? Before this um, talk, I don't mean to make any of you envious, but I was feeling quite um, hot and feeling too hot to give a talk. So I, I jumped in my car and went down to the pond and jumped in the pond for a little swim. And um, this pond is known to have leeches in it. And so I'm thinking about the leeches a little bit as I get out of the pond and um, looking down at my foot as I'm drying off. And um, there was a leech I was like, ah! <laughs> so I reached down. It wasn't a leech. It was a little leaf in the exact shape of a leech. This is what our minds do. It's like they assume so much. We immediately go to assumption, and then we like miss what the actual experience is. I was fascinated by it. It's great. We do this a lot. We do this all day. So we talk sometimes in meditation about beginner's mind. And what we're talking about is the mind that can be fresh and that can come to the moment like we've never experienced. We haven't, so we've never experienced that moment before. So we come to the moment like with this curiosity, what's happening rather than assuming that we know. A number of years ago, I went to this um, exhibit of Monet in um, Boston. And some of you probably already know this. He has uh, these lilies that in his pond that was near his house or something like that. And he painted the same lilies over 35 years. And that's curiosity, to paint the same lilies or the same, you know, over year after year after year. And what's fascinating is to look at how 
his experience of the lilies transformed over those years. So when he first painted the lilies, uh, they look like lilies. They look like our idea of lilies. It's almost like you can see he's painting his idea of lilies. And then over the years, the lilies get kind of more and more fresh, and they look less and less like lilies because he was painting more and more what he was actually seeing rather than the concept. Get what I'm saying? And so that's what we do with meditation. It's like we get closer and closer to the actual experience rather than the idea of it. So we often live so much in our um, thoughts about life rather than the reality of life. Wei Wu Wei calls it worshiping the teapot instead of drinking the tea. So we're trying to learn to drink the tea rather than worship the teapot. There's a great book that I am... Um, read recently called Buddha Takes No Prisoners by Patrick Ophuls. Really quite delightful. And one thing he says, he says about meditation, he said, here are the rules in a nutshell. Shut up, sit down, and pay attention. Everything we need to know. We can all do that. Pay attention to whatever's happening. So we can let go of the idea that we need to get somewhere. And realize that now is the only place to go. Right now. Right here. He also has a chapter in this book about what meditation is. And um, I'm going to read you some of, the, some of the descriptions he has of meditation, which can help us um, kind of have a broad and spacious idea of what we're doing here. He says that meditation is spring cleaning your heart and mind, restoring an encrusted golden pot, an archaeological dig, alchemy transforming yourself into gold, Orthodontics for the whole body. Straightens out what is twisted or bent. Taming a wild beast. Here's my favorite. Housebreaking your inner hyena. Draining a vast pestilential swamp. Gardening. An adventurous journey of discovery. Looking into a magnifying mirror that reflects back to you the hidden aspects of yourself. A device for slowing down the movie of perception and thought. Arriving at the summit of a mountain on a clear day 
the whole panorama of life reveals itself. Knocking off the chains that have kept us fettered in a dark cave. Dropping the load under which we habitually labor. Ever fresh, ever young. So we may experience uh, different aspects of this at different times. So sometimes we might um, be really on and it might feel like that mountain summit or dropping the load under which we habitually labor or an adventurous journey of discovery. So sometimes you're going to be on, it's going to be great. And then other times you're going to think you're off, you're going to think you're not doing it. And you might just be doing different aspects of it, like housebreaking your inner hyena or draining that swamp. I always encourage people to let go of their expectations of what their practice should look like, what should be happening here. It can be different things at different times amazing that way. So we'll talk about mindfulness and uh, sometimes we can kind of take that as like a chore, like something we have to do to make ourselves better. So I have a suggestion that some of you might like trying. What's it like to call it heartfulness? instead of mindfulness. It's not that big a stretch. In Eastern languages, heart and mind is often the same word. Which works better for you? Sometimes mindfulness might seem too dry and heartfulness might express that kind of engagement with life that practice is. And then for some of you, heartfulness might seem a little too um, too wet. <laughs> and mindfulness might be a word that connects better for you. But we can try both of those words. So connecting with our experience, the experience of life. So what is life? When I was uh, a young teen, when I was around 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, my father used to take my whole family camping. And I grew up with uh, seven siblings And we pretty much got to take a friend. Most of us got to take a friend camping. So we would pile the van full of about 14 or 15 kids and uh, go up to this land that a friend of his owned. Um, I grew up in Minneapolis, so north of Minneapolis. And uh, it was really quite delightful. We would play capture the flag. And we had a girls' campsite, a boys' campsite, and a little kids' campsite. And... um, 
I really enjoyed being up there. Uh, nature, as many of you uh, know, helps to really soften and open our hearts. It's kind of brings out our natural spirituality for many people. Maybe even being here, you've just noticed that. It's so beautiful, and I hope you've been noticing how beautiful it is. It kind of helps us relax into open-heartedness. But my favorite part of, of going camping would be to go off to this field where um, I would sit by myself, and I would do what I called finding myself. And basically, I was trying to figure out what that meant. And so I would sit in this field, and I started to figure out that if I connected to hearing, if I connected to seeing, if I connected to smelling, if I connected to my body and what it felt, I felt like I found myself. And if I was lost and not aware of what was happening, then I felt like I missed it. The first poem I ever wrote as a teenager was about that. finding. It was about the senses and about finding myself. And in many ways, I was practicing Vipassana. I didn't know it at the time. But the Buddha himself said, what is life? He said, it's hearing, it's seeing, tasting, smelling, tactile sensations of body and the mind. So that's what we connect with when we practice. We're connecting with the six senses. In um, Buddhist philosophy, there's what we usually think of as a five plus the mind as a sixth sense. The Buddha also said, in this fathom-long body, the whole universe is discovered. That by sitting down and paying attention to our experience, as it unfolds, we can discover the whole universe. That's a pretty powerful statement. So the whole universe, as it manifests through the senses... Mindfulness is a very powerful quality. It's key to the Buddha's teachings. Why is it so powerful? Why does it matter so much? This attention is so powerful because it allows us to see life as it is, rather than how we think it is, how we want it to be, how we don't want it to be, but how it actually is. And when we can see life how it is, we can make peace with it. We can come into harmony with life. And we can find peace of heart and peace of mind. So we can read about how life is, we can read books, we can study But to actually come into harmony with life, we need to sit down and see how it is. To see clearly, which is the meaning of Vipassana. So we try to do this with a sense of kindness. 
John Kabat-Zen said, mindfulness practice is a radical act of love. I really agree with that. When we sit down with our experience with the intention to be with whatever it is, to accept whatever it is, that's love. And it's radical. Not how we usually live. We usually live with a lot of um, judgment of life. And so we're aiming for this kindness of acceptance. We humans live so much in judgment of life, so much um, rejection and grasping, rejection and grasping. And it produces within us a profound sense of alienation from ourselves. See, the frog agrees with that too. With a kindness-infused awareness, we learn to come home to ourselves. And that sense of alienation gets healed with a profound sense of peace and connection. going to let him give the rest of the talk. (laughs) I love them. They're so beautiful. So I hope you have fun this week. I hope you enjoy the adventure. It takes a lot of courage to do this. A number of you are, um, this is your first retreat. It's like uh, Patricia was saying to me in the um, before we came out for our talk, she was saying to me in the staff dining room, these people have courage. You know, their first retreat, they come and do nine days. And it's true. To be willing to make ourselves that vulnerable that we'll come here without TV and computers and phones and all the ways we usually distract ourselves and just relax into what is, what our life is, that takes a lot of courage. So I want you to have fun. I invite you to have fun and I invite you to relax and enjoy the beauty of this place. Know there will be times when it's going to be really boring and you're going to fall asleep. Times when your mind's going to be like crazy. And then there will be moments when you'll just connect with what is and understand that peace that comes when there's non-resistance. A poem by Hafiz, the Sufi mystic, called Tripping Over Joy. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God, 
and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. I'm going to encourage you to surrender. <laughs> to surrender to your practice, however it is. Perhaps forget about the thousand serious moves. We Buddhists talk a lot about freedom. Freedom means open-heartedness to all. Practice is stretching, stretching what we can hold in our hearts stretching what we're able to connect with. So sometimes you'll stretch a little bit. Oh, fear. Can I allow fear to just be, for example? And we stretch, and our hearts and our minds get wider and more spacious. They can be as big as the universe. The Buddha talks about the unshakable liberation of mind. I just love that phrase, the unshakable liberation of mind. That's what we're aiming for. And to me, nothing lies outside of that freedom. We get to include it all. I'd like to end with a poem um, by Joy Harjo, a Native American poet, called Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River. Circles and blue sky and wind swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Let's sit a moment.
May the moments of your life be blessed with mindfulness, heartfulness, kindness, and beauty. At 9 o'clock, we'll chant the Metta Metta Sutra again, like we did last night. And um, we'll make it a short sitting. So we'll be done by about 9.20, okay? So hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.